My name is Ryan Short and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I'm joined by Michael Pappas, class of 83. Michael Pappas is the executive director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council. Prior to this position, he worked as a lobbyist, a regional field director for a presidential campaign, and an investment banker. Then he pursued his Master of Divinity with honors from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. During his ministry, Pappas served parishes in Illinois and California. He contributed to numerous articles for religious and secular periodicals. Now he works to build multi-religious relationships. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. The first question is, what called you to be a priest in the Greek Orthodox Church? Well, having said some of the things you said, uh, I had worked on the New Jersey Reagan Bush campaign as the Northern California field director, and strangely, when I had gone into investment banking, there was a critical moment, and it was in a New York City subway when I had been accosted by a homeless man, and the guard who helped me up said, sir, I don't know what to say, but President Reagan said, if this man takes his medicine, he'll be fine, but he lives down here. So I had a crisis of consciousness. It was the 80s. I had been making a lot of money but was feeling rather unfulfilled. That, that's what led me to the seminary and ultimately to the priesthood. What were the differences between how you interacted with the community in Illinois compared to California when you were practicing as a priest? The parish I served in Chicago as an assistant was, was a very immigrant Greek parish and it had a day school and uh, we did about a thousand hospital calls a year and I was a teacher of fourth, fifth, and sixth grade at the parochial school and I think I spent probably 95% of my day interacting with Greek people and the Greek language. When I moved to Stockton, California, which was the first of the two parishes I served, it was a, a more rural area in central California in the Central Valley, and um, I had parishioners who had wine grape vineyards and walnuts, and real hardworking, good folk. The difference being that it was the only Orthodox church in all of the county, and so I was serving folks from different Orthodox Christian uh, jurisdictions. It was 10 wonderful years. It was my first pastorate. And then the last three years I came to San Francisco, and I followed somebody who'd been there 49 years in a more urban setting. Do you think faith-based institutions are becoming less important to society? On the contrary. Um, I think that they're becoming absolutely essential for a number of reasons, in part because faith-based institutions, uh, in particular the faith-based social service agencies are pro uh, that are contracted with uh, city governments are providing the safety net for the most vulnerable residents of metropolitan areas, but uh, especially in difficult economic times. But it's in the DNA of faith-based organizations to do good and to provide for those who are without. I don't think the city, our city or any city uh, or locality would be as enriched without them. Why do you think faith-based institutions are necessary? The founder of my organization once said, if, if the San Francisco Interfaith Council dissolved tomorrow, we'd have to reinvent it. There is something ab about what we do. It is both trying to put faith in action and also offering a moral voice and a prophetic voice at key times 
to, to keep the community in check, but also uh, to do good. And so, uh, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I said I think that if you are going to um, if you are going to enrich civilization and you're going to enrich the goodness of a place, faith-based organizations are essential. How have your experiences as a priest influenced your work at the San Francisco Interfaith Council? Well, you know, I was a priest of a particular denomination, and yet um, the skills that I learned as a priest and my understanding of the priesthood has helped me in particular interact with the clergy of many different faiths now, and also to understand structures that they are dealing with. And I think that, that all of my experiences, not just the priesthood, but my work uh, as a lobbyist, uh, my, my work on the campaign, my work in investment banking, has helped in terms of building relationships and trying to find the good in religion that can benefit the greater society. What are multi-faith relationships and how do you build multi-faith relationships? Multi-faith relationships are basically taking the best and looking for points of commonality because I think uh, religion has in the past been the source of conflict. When you can look at the best that, that each faith has to offer and try to harvest that for the greater good, that's important. Additionally, I would say too that because a good part of our work is cultivating such relationships, that when difficult conversations have to happen, the people in the room know one another and there can be civil discourse. They will actually listen to one another and they will respect one another. It doesn't mean they'll always agree. And the way we uh, foster multi-faith relationships is primarily through service because uh, when people are serving together at a homeless shelter or in a food line, they have an opportunity to develop relationships of trust, which I think are absolutely foundational to authentic interfaith dialogue. And I would add to that that I think sometimes people will never put a, pick up a book on someone else's faith, and all they'll know is what they see in the other's actions and words. And so I think uh, those interactions and relationship building are really a unique opportunity to do interfaith dialogue without having to make it too intellectual. Why are multi-faith relationships important? I think that um, to a degree I just answered that. I think that the more you get into it one-on-one, -on -one, it benefits greater, uh, greater interfaith interactions. We see this primarily in times of crisis. I will give you one example that I think is important. Uh, from where I come from, it's earthquake country. And uh, we are told that if an earthquake happens, for 72 hours we will be isolated. I think it's the expectation of people who live in neighborhoods that, that congregations will have their doors open, be able to offer shelter and food and pastoral care. And so what we've tried to do is encourage relationships, especially in neighborhoods, so that can prepare in advance. And in doing so, they're actually doing interfaith work. How do multi-faith relationships influence faith-based institutions? I think that the culture of um, multi-faith relationships opens minds. You know, for, for the longest time, it, it's very easy to go to your place of comfort. 
and faith-based institutions, many of them have their uh, genesis in, uh, you know, in the in in the particular tradition from which they emerge. Uh, I can tell, I can give you an example of how multi-faith actually does impact particular faith-based institutions. Uh, when the Great Recession hit uh, in 2008, our organization began to convene the faith-based social service agencies in San Francisco. Catholic Charities, Salvation Army, Glide, uh, Jewish Family and Children's Services. Well, there are about 15 of them. And for the first time, uh, these CEOs were talking with one another and they were exchanging notes and, um, and were being able to be a professional support to one another. For the first time in three years, we met. We met. What amazed me about that meeting and the substance that came out of that meeting was the desire for these agencies to partner with one another. So I think we've done something right to transform you know, what could otherwise be living in a silo. How does the involvement of religious institutions in the social justice movements today compare to their involvement in the social movements of the 1960s and 70s? That's, that, that is an absolute great question. Uh, we have a number of faith-based organizing projects that are out there that are doing social justice. I think it's in the DNA of faith-based uh, communities to do social justice. But I think that w right now we are looking at new, trying to partner with new partners who are coming up in the social justice movement, for instance, Black Lives Matter. And, and what relationship do they want to have with faith-based institutions? We know that uh, in the 1960s, it was it was the it was the African American pulpit that was at the heart of the civil rights movement. Uh, today, there are other voices, and there are other, there's a new generation. I can see that just from my perch that there is a great desire to be part of social justice work, and the the clergy that I know and the faith-based institutions that I know are very outspoken and want to exercise their prophetic and moral voice, and they will. And they are looking to do it with other with other uh, partners of different faiths. How does religion impact public policy? Here is an example, um, a very recent example, being the pandemic. At the outset of the pandemic, we saw this tsunami of a of a, of a public health crisis coming, and even before health orders were passed down, different religious traditions were um, were trying to put together ways in which they could care for their particular communities. And so our Interfaith Council was harvesting their thoughts and sharing it with the Public Health Department, which took into serious consideration the collective uh, proposals of these faith-based institutions before, as they were crafting the health orders to be able to be sensitive to uh, to these congregations and also to respect First Amendment rights because from our perch I know that city governments are very skittish to tell uh, religious institutions what to do but I think that what the input of the religious institutions in this case in particular was very helpful to crafting the policy and the health orders to assist. I can also tell you that in San Francisco at least folks from religious communities are asked to sit on important commissions such as the Human Rights Commission and others because they bring a unique perspective 
And I think that that perspective is valued, and I think it's a constructive perspective that is assisted in crafting policy. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you would like to talk about? I am just very grateful to be back at Dickinson um, after 40 years, and I was thinking if there was one thing I did not say at the Clark Lecture that I wish I had is the richness and the power of Dickinson is that it always continues to challenge to challenge the norm. And I pray, especially in these times, that it will continue to do that so that the students leaving here uh, will be able to make the impact that our society needs. On behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you again for your time today. Thank you.